Howdy, strangers. Long time no see. I'm Jordy. And I'm Brad. And welcome back to Beers with Queers and part two of our coverage of Pee Wee Gaskins and the Revenge of Tony Simo. So if you guys haven't listened to part one yet, be sure to go listen to it first. It's a pretty quick one. It's only like 30 minutes. And then come back and listen to this one because we're going to be picking up halfway through the story. And it is a uh, an interesting one. It's a doozy. So far, we've got bombs. We've got incompetent prison guards. We've got a revenge plot. And... We've got me failing to be a Southerner and knowing about the Andy Griffith Show. So please go back and watch. Yeah, if you watch the Andy Griffith Show, I'm sure you know who Ernest T. Bass is. <laughs> he didn't, even though we watch it about uh, every other day. So let's go over a brief recap of where we left off at the end of part one. Murdy and Bill Moon were two small-town store owners who were gunned down in their store during a robbery gone wrong by 18-year-old Rudolph Tyner. Now, Rudolph was sentenced to death, but several legal technicalities meant his execution would not happen for a long time, which deeply angered the Moon's son, Tony Simo. Tony wanted Tyner dead ASAP and began to look for someone on the inside to kill him. Through a mutual friend, he eventually got into contact with Donald Peewee Gaskins, a convicted serial killer who agreed to carry out the hit. He'd killed 15 people so far. That they know of. So what's more? What's one more to tack on? Now, after several failed attempts at poisoning Tyner, Gaskins had Tony mail him C4 explosives hidden in a radio, which, Gas- which Gaskins then fashioned into a radio that he told Tyner would allow them to communicate through their cells. Now, after Tyner followed Gaskins' instructions and plugged the device into the outlet, he held it up to his ear where it exploded and instantly killed him. Now, Rudolph Tyner would be Pee-wee's last victim, but his reign of terror began years before, and according to him, he claimed anywhere from 90 to 100 victims since the 1960s. And although police only officially linked him to and discovered the bodies of 14, if you believe his claims, he's one of the most prolific serial killers in history. But we'll, uh, we'll get into it. He's not really the most reliable narrator here. So before we... Tell you how the story ends and the fates of both Tony Simo and Pee Wee Gaskins. Let's rewind a bit and discover the origins of the meanest man in America, as Pee Wee was often dubbed by the media. So let's just start from the beginning. Donald Henry Parrott Jr. was born on March 13, 1933, in Florence County, South Carolina, to single mother Eula Parrott. He was one of five children Eula had with different men, and the family lived in extreme poverty. Now, it was clear from the start that Eula cared very little for him and often left him unattended and neglected. This resulted in an incident when Pee-wee was just one years old where he was left at the house alone and ended up drinking a bottle of kerosene. This resulted in him having seizures until he was three and severe nerve damage for the rest of his life. His mother believes that that's probably when his problems started. At one. Probably. 
Now, his mother also had a long string of various lovers that would come and go through his life, but all of them would make sure to regularly beat the shit out of him. And sometimes his own uncles would join in uh, on the beatings and humiliation. And I'll actually play a clip right here of him talking about how often he would get whipped by everyone in his family. Anything that any of my uncles or aunts didn't like, they would take a hedge bush switch or a pear crease brown or an apple crease brown. As long as it was a good switch, and they'd tear my back and legs up. He'd be red spots all over my body. They are also the ones who gave him the nickname Pee Wee. But it wasn't in a cute or loving sort of way. It was meant to humiliate him and remind him of his small stature. They called him Pee-wee so Donald they called him Pee-wee so often that he would later say that he didn't discover his real name was Donald until it was read out loud by a judge years later at a sentencing hearing when he was fourteen. Now, did you say Pee-wee was five two? Yeah, Pee-wee's five two. So he's a very small guy, and I posted photos on our uh, social media pages you can see he's a he's a widow guy and now the school kids didn't spare him any kindness either and would often gang up on him and chant things like peewee 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 playing with his peepee before beating the shit out of him and you know kids are just absolute shitheads now that's one version of the story because peewee has told many over the years But there's also conflicting reports because another version of the story, he reportedly told Dr. Jim Beatty, he didn't get the nickname Pee-wee until years later, after he went to prison for the first time when a guard made an offhand remark to a visiting reporter about that Pee-wee fella over there. The reporter wrote that down and the name stuck. So there's those are the two main versions of how he got the name Pee-wee. So, you know, it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure game. You believe whichever one you want. He began to show early signs of disturbed behavior from a very young age. And here's a very quick trigger warning. Some of the abuse that he performed on animals included ripping one leg off of a bullfrog to see how they would hop and often catching birds and snapping their necks. And I'm sure anyone that's deep into true crime knows abusing animals is one of the biggest red signs of a serial killer when they grow up. You'll find a lot of them just tortured animals and it just escalated from there to people now he began to act out and got into fights daily at school before eventually he just dropped out now a stepfather would constantly beat him and try to get him to act right but pretty soon all the beatings all the beatings did was teach peewee how to hide his mischievous ways better and eventually he became a master sneak which of course he would continue to develop through the years as his criminal activities went on by age 11 Pee-wee had dropped out of school and formed a gang with two other youths called the Trouble Trio. They would spend their days breaking in and robbing houses and using the money to go buy prostitutes. Now, this is a very big trigger warning, so skip ahead 10 seconds if you need to. But the trio also gang-raped one of the members' sister, for which they received no official punishment, only a spanking from their parents, and then life moved on. It was so you can uh, tell the kind of household these kids were living in. It was around this time that Pee-wee discovered who his real father was and that his name was Donald Gaskins. And so he officially changed his name to Donald Henry Gaskins. Now things came to a head in 1946 when at the age of 14, Pee-wee broke into a house to rob it, only to be interrupted by a young girl who lived there coming home. And you want to know what she did? She attacked Pee-wee with an axe But unfortunately, Pee-wee was able to wrestle the axe from her and hit her in the head with it before running off and leaving her for dead. 
So, and this girl was like 12 or 13. First thing she thought was, I'm going to hack this motherfucker up. You go, girl. Now, this girl actually knew Pee Wee and his family, and she managed to crawl out of the house and get help. So, yes, she did make a full recovery. Following that, Pee Wee was arrested at the age of 13 and was arrested and tried for attempted murder and sent to a reform school until he was 18. But, of course, Pee Wee had a different story to tell. And until his dying day, because, spoiler alert, he does die, he continued to maintain his innocence in this attack, stating that he was simply walking home from school when he found the girl, already beaten and bloody. He says he was framed, and had he not been framed and sent to reform school, then all the murders that came after would have never happened. You gotta have a good origin story for why you're a shit. You do, and so he, that's true, and so he's actually pretty candid with most of his involvement with the other crimes, like he's pretty open like yeah i did this because i felt like it but i think he kept lying about this incident because he saw this as the starting gun so to speak ultimately everything wasn't my fault in the end it was because of this yeah so it's like if they hadn't done this to me so it's society's fault for making me the monster because you know he said he learned that he went through hell in that reform school and you're about to see this was a um a pretty rough reform school and so I do think he blames a lot of his later violent tendencies on his time spent there. But it's also pretty clear that he was pretty disturbed before that. So now this school, which was called the South Carolina Industrial School for Boys, was supposed to help Gaskins better himself and turn him away from a life of crime. But now do you think that's what it did? I don't think so. No. In fact, it did the opposite. Almost immediately, he became a target of the other boys due to his small frame and was frequently beaten within an inch of his life and, again, slight trigger warning, gang raped by the other inmates. The guards would also enjoy beating and abusing him, and in order to survive, Gaskins became the sexual slave of the strongest boy in the school in order to keep the others from ganging up on him. Now, his time in juvenile hall also made him grow as an escape artist, and in total, he escaped four times in the four years he was there. On his second attempt, they actually used bloodhounds to try and catch him, and he actually caught the hounds and tied them to a tree before riding Pee-wee was here on the hood of one of the cop cars and running off again. Eventually, by his fourth escape, police were honestly just tired of his shit, and so they just said fuck it and let him go. After his final escape, Pee-wee joined the carnival where he met and married a 13-year-old girl with her father's blessing. This would be his first of six wives. And here's this, a funny little detail. It's funny because divorce was something that was kind of against his weird, twisted code of ethics because he did have a code of ethics. And when someone actually called him out on it, he told them how he never actually gets divorced when he gets tired of one and wants to marry another. He just goes and buys another marriage license, and it's legit. So, uh, you know, there's always a way around it. So he technically has a harem. Oh, he does, and by the end of it, they're all living together. So Eventually, he actually did return voluntarily to reform school and finished out his sentence where he was released in 1951. So, you know, he's uh, trying to start a new leave, trying to do things right. But now, do you think that Pee-wee decided to go straight and start making an honest living? I don't think so. Well, by his standards, he did, because he started working by having farmers pay him to burn down their old barns for insurance money. Well, Pee-wee was not out for very long. Because in 1953, just over a year after his release, Pee-wee attacked a teenage girl and attempted to beat her to death with a hammer after he thought she was laughing at him. The girl thankfully survived, but Pee-wee was soon arrested for attempted murder and sentenced to six years in the South Carolina penitentiary. 
So this is no longer a reform school. This is straight up federal prison. Now, adult prison was no different than the reform school. It was ran by gangs. And of course, the weakest prisoners were treated like shit. Not long after Pee Wee arrived, he discovered the power men, as they would call themselves. Now, the power men are the top inmates on the totem pole, essentially. They were the most feared and had it pretty easy overall in terms of prison conditions. Like, they got the easiest jobs. They got all the snacks. They were trusted by the guards and stuff like that. And so they're the, they're the mean girls of prison. Now, Pee Wee knew that if he didn't want to become a prison bitch again... As he, he referred, that's what they are referred to as prison bitches. That's not me saying that. They yeah. are referred to it if you don't already know. He would have to prove himself a power man and someone not to be fucked with. So he began looking around for which power man he was going to murder, and that came in the form of an inmate named Hazel Brazel. Pee Wee spent weeks gaining Hazel's trust, which, which included often bringing him food from the kitchen and anything else he wanted. He did this until the other power men let their guard down and allowed him to be alone with Hazel, at which point Pee Wee stole a paring knife from the kitchen and calmly strolled into Hazel's cell where he proceeded to slash his throat open and leave him to bleed to death, making him Pee Wee's first confirmed victim. Now, Pee-wee was, of course, quickly caught and charged with Hazel's murder. However, due to Hazel's very violent criminal past and Pee-wee's size, claiming he claimed it was self-defense, so he was only charged with manslaughter and got served and got to serve his sentence concurrently with his current six-year sentence. So he basically got to commit murder for free. So uh, being widow has its perks, apparently at least in prison. But Pee-wee's plan worked because after this, he was officially made a power man and nobody in prison dared mess with him. So he took a risk, but it paid off. He did take a huge risk because he was only going to be there for six years. So he murdered someone, which would probably get him a life sentence. Oh yeah, it's a risk. Like that should have gotten him a life sentence. But again, this is like the 50s. So they're like, well, we don't give a shit. Anything goes, I guess. But it worked. His plan paid off. He's a risk taker. But of course, Pee Wee wasn't in jail for long because he escaped in 1955 because he's heard his wife was trying to plan to divorce him. So he stowed away in the back of a garbage truck and he is eventually caught up with a traveling carnival and met another girl whom he also married but left after two weeks. So he broke out with the plan to find his current wife, but then he met up with the carnival, met a new wife, but then he got tired of her after two weeks. And so he's just burning through it. He was eventually rearrested and sentenced again after he fell in love with a woman. And he said this was like one of the only women that he like truly fell in love with. And she convinced him to help break her brother out of jail too so they could all go on the run together. So that's exactly what Pee Wee did. He went to the prison and uh, broke her brother out of jail. But then when he returned, he found all his money and his car were stolen and that her brother was actually her husband. So he was not too happy about being duped like that. But finally and ultimately, after being rearrested, he got paroled in August of 1961. Again, he was not out for long before he was arrested again for the rape of a 12-year-old girl and sentenced to eight years in prison, just eight, before being paroled in 1968. After this release, he vowed that he would never again return to prison. And with that is where we start the murders. Now, this is where actually a lot of speculation and rumors and misinformation begin to run rampant in the legacy of Pee-wee Gaskins. So Pee-wee actually wrote his own autobiography called Final Truth, and in it he makes a lot of claims. 
because he claims to have murdered anywhere from 90 to over 100 people starting in 1969. Which, again, like I said, if that's true, then that means he's one of the most prolific killers in history. However, let's just say this now, none of this info has actually ever been corroborated by the police and no actual evidence has turned up to support these claims. But I'm going to talk about them anyway because honestly, who the hell knows? It was the 70s. It's not like there was a lot of, you know, security cameras and stuff like that. So some of there may be some truth to this, but also it could all just be bullshit and it might just even be him trying to show his murderous fantasies. Pee-wee states that he began his coastal killings, as he called them, in September of 1969 when he picked up a female hitchhiker near Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. After she refused his sexual advances, he beat her unconscious before raping and murdering her. He then threw her body into a nearby swamp. It was during this murder, Pee-wee... It was during this murder, Pee-wee stated that he realized if he killed her once he was finished, he could do whatever he wanted to her and she couldn't tell the law, and thus began his bloodlust for murder. Pee-wee went on to claim that he tortured dozens in various ways across the coast of North and South Carolina, stating, Some of them I cut, some I burned, I ran a cable in and out of one and hung her up with it, I pumped another one full of water, which seemed to really hurt, filling her up until it came out of her nose and mouth. She died quickly, but I wanted them to last as long as possible. He even claimed that he cannibalized parts of his victims, often eating chunks of their flesh in front of them while they were still alive and sometimes even forcing them to eat parts of themselves. He claims that he murdered at least 10 to 12 people a year, often on the weekends as recreational activity, as he called it, but it was in 1970 that he began his serious murders, which were the ones for personal gain or profit. Now all this, like I said, now all this sounds horrible and horrific and to think about it too long would drive you crazy as at how sadistic he could possibly be, but again, police never found any actual evidence of any of these supposed murders, nor any evidence of cannibalism. More than likely, Pee-wee was attempting to boost his reputation as the meanest man in America, but also again, who knows. Now, let's start with the actual confirmed murders. So, these are all the victims whose bodies were found and testimony in Pee-wee corroborated. Pee-wee's first confirmed kill happened in November of 1970, and it was his own niece and a friend of hers, 15-year-old Janice Kirby and her 17-year-old friend Patricia Allsbrook. Both teens had apparently been hanging out at Pee-wee's for a few days and were taking various types of drugs, and surprisingly, for some strange reason, again, Pee-wee hated drugs. It was against his code of ethics, he never actually did them or anything, and he hated people that did drugs. So he's got some sort of a moral high ground. And that's only one strange, thing about, one strange thing about him. He never did drugs. He proceeded to sexually assault the two before beating them to death with his bare hands. He dumped Patricia's body in an old septic tank and then buried Janice in a field by his house because he said she was family and he couldn't imagine putting her in the septic tank. And so uh, drugs are bad, but assaulting and beating to death your own niece is fine. And rape. Don't forget rape. Now, his next victim would be in March of 1971, a 20-year-old African-American woman named Martha Ann Dix, who went by Clyde. Now, Clyde identified as a lesbian, but would occasionally sleep with men. She was last seen walking to a nearby club in the early morning hours. Her family stated they called the police to report her missing, but police would later state that they had no record of the call, and so they did not investigate her disappearance. Now, Clyde was one of his victims who wasn't buried in the field, and he wasn't a suspect at all in her case, until one day at a court hearing after his arrest, he just casually brought her up and admitted to murdering her and dumping her body in a ditch. 
After some searching, police were able to find her remains in the ditch where Pee Wee said he dumped her. He would later go on to say that he killed her by slipping poison in her drink as revenge because she was allegedly oh, she was allegedly the one who sold his niece Janice drugs. So he does not like those drugs. Now his next two victims would be in June 1973, and this is going to be a rough one. The victim was 22-year-old Doreen Hope Dempsey and her two-year-old daughter, Robin. Now, Doreen and Pee-wee were actually friends for several years leading up to her murder. Having met through a mutual friend at the carnival where Pee-wee, was, where Pee-wee used to work and actually lived with him for several months while she got back on her feet as her husband had actually left her. Around this time, Pee-wee got married again. This time to Sandy Snell, who was soon pregnant with their child. Doreen also began became pregnant around this time and it wasn't long after this that Doreen gave birth to Robin and Pee-wee was furious when he saw that the baby was a biracial baby because remember he is a huge piece of shit racist. He would later say that he felt betrayed and kicked her out of the house sending her to live with his friend Johnny Sellers and his brother Carl Sellers both of whom were a part of Pee-wee's auto theft ring and so we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But when, as soon as he got out of prison, he started this huge, and it was actually pretty lucrative, auto theft business where they would steal cars, gut them, repaint them, and then resell them on the black market. But he had a whole like ring of people that helped him out with this. Now, in 1973, Carl discovered that Doreen was pregnant again by the father of Robin. And so he took Doreen and Robin to stay with Pee Wee's and dropped her off with all her luggage to stay with them until she delivered the baby. Upon learning that she was once again pregnant with a biracial baby, Pee-wee walked Doreen out back behind his house and drowned her in his pond before doing the same thing to Robin. Pee-wee would later say that he killed Robin because she wouldn't have a decent life growing up as an orphaned biracial baby. So he's trying to justify his killing of a two-year-old. Now, by 1974, things between Sandy and Pee-wee were already strained, and Pee-wee began to have affairs on the side. When Sandy found out, she too began an affair. When Pee-wee found out about this, he was furious and proceeded to tie her to a tree before whipping her repeatedly with a branch thicker than my thumb, he said. Sandy refused to press charges, and instead she burned down a house Pee-wee owned. Sandy continued to live with Pee-wee, but he was ready for a new wife. So he married again for the sixth and final time to Donna Carula. Now, it was around this time that a young 22-year-old woman in need also moved into the house named Jessie Judy, and I think that's such a cool name, Jessie Judy. That sounds like a uh, like a Quentin Tarantino character. Jessie would later be described as the only woman Pee-wee ever actually loved as he was infatuated with her. But after about a year of living there, Jessie moved out of Pee-wee's and in- with his friend and began dating Johnny Sellers. And remember, that's the one that took Doreen in there for a couple months. So while all of this is going on, Pee-wee was running a pretty successful auto theft ring, like I mentioned before. The group stole and resold dozens of cars and even boats. Eventually, Johnny got into legal trouble for breaking into a drugstore and began to threaten to turn Pee-wee into the police if he didn't get paid his share for a boat he helped Pee-wee steal. So in June 1974, Pee-wee picked Johnny up from his house to go pull off another car theft but instead drove him out to the woods where he shot him directly in the back of the head. He then left his body there before going back to the house and picking up Jessie Judy and taking her to the same spot and proceeded to stab her to death. 
He then buried the two together in a shallow grave in the same field as his other victims. Now, in February 1975, Pee-wee was approached by a local woman named Suzanne Owens, who knew about his reputation and offered him a job in assassinating her ex-husband, Silas Barnwell Yates. And so Suzanne and her husband, John Owens, paid Pee-wee $1,500 to kill Silas, and Pee-wee accepted the offer and murdered Silas by slashing his throat open and burying him in the field. Now, it was around this time that Pee-wee also bought a hearse, and he began driving it around town and telling his bar buddies that he needed it to haul the bodies of his victims around. And of course, you know, when that had, they're like, oh, ha, 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 he's such a kidder. But then afterwards, after everything's found out, it's like, he, he wasn't lying. <laughs> he would use it to casually just move his victims from location to location. Now, his next set of victims were very personal for Pee-wee, 25-year-old Diane Neely and her partner, Avery Howard. So Diane was actually the ex-wife of Walter Neely. And you may, you may remember Walter Neely from the end of part one. I mentioned him a bit. But he was the closest thing to Pee-wee had as a best friend. He's the only person Pee-wee truly trusted and saw as a partner in crime with the auto theft ring. Now, Pee-wee did not like Diane at all, and he saw her as a terrible mother and hated the way she treated Walter. Now, this all stems from an incident with the death of Diane and Walter's newborn a few years earlier. Again, trigger warning, this is brutal. Diane had actually left her baby in the bathtub alone with their three-year-old. After she left, the three-year-old unknowingly turned on the hot water, and the baby died from third-degree burns. This, again, was against Pee-wee's ethics, and he saw her as an unfit mother. And it also didn't help that Diane began to see another man and began flaunting her new boyfriend, Avery, around in front of Walter, trying to humiliate him and make him jealous. Now, eventually, Diane and Avery attempted to blackmail Pee-wee into giving them money, or else they'd turn him in for not only the auto theft ring, but also the fact that Pee-wee would often let teenagers come over to his house to have sex. So, Pee-wee promised to give them a car in exchange for their silence. On April 10th, 1975, he took the couple out to the field by his house in order to give them the car, but instead proceeded to shoot Avery through the head before stabbing Diane to death. Then burying their bodies in the field, but not before allegedly going and giving, getting Walter to take him back to show him his wife's dead body. And there's another story. So Pee-wee and Avery actually knew each other from prison. And there was an incident in the prison where Pee-wee was trying to buy weed from Avery, but Avery slipped it into his pocket when he went back to his cell. And so he got caught with it and he got sent to solitary. And Pee-wee actually told Avery, he said, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not even 20 years from now, but I'll get you. And so that was 10 years before he buried Avery and Diane in their graves. Now, wait, Pee-wee was buying weed? Yeah, so they were in like a weed thing together, I think, from what I read. And so Avery planted it on Pee-wee and got him in trouble with the guards. And so when Pee-wee found out about it, he was like, okay, I'm going to get you because you'll see he does not take any sort of slot or anything he sees as wrong, he does not take it well. I was fixing to say, if you're buying weed, then your whole I'm anti-drug and killing people for it is something. Also, this guy's like very brazen because like most of his killings, he does two at a time. He does. He just and he, well, you saw from the 
murder of Tyner, he doesn't give a shit where we are. He doesn't care who's around. He's like, if he can get it done, he'll get it done. And he's getting multiple people involved with this. And he's just like, oh, I don't care. If they, if I feel like they're going to blab, I'll just kill them and bury them too. And I also can't stop visualizing this guy in my head as Ernest T. Bass from Andy Griffith now because of, you know, from episode one. So like, this is like a like a horror story of Andy Griffith going on in my head. He honestly also kind of looks like Ernest, just a little. But his voice sounds a lot like Ernest, but he kind of looks like him too. Now, we are actually almost at the end of Pee-wee's Rampage, and this leads us to 13-year-old Kim Gelkin. Now, Kim and her family moved into a trailer directly across the street from Pee-wee, and, would go, and she would go over and visit the house often and soon began having a friendship with Donna Gaskins, his wife, because Donna was only 17 years older. And so she was like 19 and Pee Wee's like in his almost fifties. But Kim began to see Donna as a mother figure as Kim's own mother had passed away just a few months before they moved across the street. At one point, this is actually a really sad detail. Kim actually got an assignment in school to write a paper on the person they admired the most. And she actually wrote it about Donna. But by not but by seventeen but by September nineteen seventy five, Kim would disappear without a trace. Her father confronted Pee Wee, but he told him that he hadn't seen Kim in several days. So the father just accepted this and figured that Kim had run away, so he didn't bother to report her missing to the police. And that's another thing too. The reason he got away with it so long, and it's like all his victims are people that are directly related to him in some way, but a lot of them are the ones that go underreported, underrepresented, don't have a lot of family, don't have a lot of people. And he would say this later on. He's like, it was all people that I wasn't afraid to get caught because they were people that no one cared about or they didn't have loved ones that would worry about them and stuff like that. But we will see soon that someone did actually care for Kim at least. At one point uh, on October 10th, 1975, Pee Wee would strike again when he murdered 27-year-old Dennis Bellamy and his 15-year-old brother Johnny, Johnny Knott. The two were actually the half brothers to Diane Neely. Dennis had actually sold Pee Wee some stolen guns and came to, to his house to collect his payment. Instead of paying, Pee Wee said he'd just give Dennis the gun back. So he led Dennis out back and into the woods where he had buried the guns. But now, of course, Pee Wee had actually already sold the guns and spent the money. So instead, after taking him out into the woods, Pee-wee shot Dennis in the back of the head with a pistol. Just a few minutes later, Pee-wee took Johnny and Walter Neely down to the same place in the woods and shot Johnny in the back of the head in order for him to not go to the cops. He then had Walter dig him a hole to bury the bodies in. Now, eventually, Kim's teacher would be the one to report her missing after she failed to show up to school for over a month. Police took the report seriously this time and actually began to investigate hard, looking at everyone who had a connection to Kim, and that included the Gaskins. The police quickly began to zero in on Pee Wee, mainly because all these people started coming forward and mentioning how all these people had gone missing around the area and how all of them had one common denominator, Pee Wee. That included the mother of Diane, Johnny, and Dennis who also mentioned how she failed to go to the police because it was a private family matter. And I don't know what that means, but when three of your kids go missing, I mean, you kind of got to start worrying at some point. Or you don't. Or you don't. 
Police soon interview Donna and Sandy Gaskins, because remember, he's still married to both of them, and they're both still living in the house with him. Sandy would be the one to give Pee-wee up, though, and admitted that she had seen him with Kim right before she disappeared. After visiting a trailer Pee-wee owned, they discovered some of Kim's clothing and knew they had their guy. Pee-wee was arrested for the final time on November 14, 1975. Then they begin to question Walter Neely, who did not take long at all to crack under pressure, and admitted to the police about his knowledge in Pee-wee's murder of Dennis, Johnny, and that he could also take them to a burial site with several more victims. But Kim was not one of them. Now, it was also, Walter also mentioned how Pee-wee had stopped to help a trio of teens whose van had broken down on the side of the road, but on a whim, he decided to torture all three before drowning them one by one. He then called Walter to come help him move the bodies in the van, and then, but this claim was un, not substantiated by evidence, so it's another story. And this is also, I didn't mention this, after they were all arrested, uh, they found Diane and Avery's bodies, and so Pee-wee had actually gotten Walter and his wife Donna to say that they were the ones to kill them and that they had stabbed them to death in the back of a car. But, of course, forensics proved that wrong. But it's just the fact that Pee-wee is able to convince people to willingly give up their lives to potentially spend in prison just so he could get potentially a lighter sentence. So that's kind of where the uh, Charles Manson of the South came in. Now, Kim's case actually went cold for almost a year until Pee-wee was convicted of Dennis's murder. During his trial for the murder of Silas Yates, he agreed to lead police to his body in exchange for a conjugal visit from Donna, and in exchange for another conjugal visit, he led them to Kim's body. Now, Pee-wee would later admit that Kim apparently came to him asking him for help in getting away from her abusive father, and so he drove her across county lines, which was illegal, to take her to his daughter Shirley's house to live with her and her husband. But soon, Kim told a local store clerk that she was being repeatedly abused by Shirley's husband, Pee-wee, and several other men at the home. After Pee-wee heard that Kim had been John, as he often called it when people would talk about him, and that's another thing, he's like, I killed them because they were John, but just imagine that like two octaves up. Now, he had brought her to his trailer after that, and he proceeded to stab her to death before shooting her and burying her out in the woods. Pee-wee was never charged with her murder, as he had already been found guilty of murder and sentenced to death on May 24th, 1975. So, it's a thing where they were like, yeah, he's already got the sentence, but the family still deserves justice. Kim's family still deserves justice. So, that we are back to where we started at the beginning of part one. It's 1982, and Pee-wee has just carried out a hit against death row inmate Rudolph Tyner at the request of Tony Simo, the son of Tyner's victims. Now, of course, it did not take long for police to realize that Tyner had been murdered. His hand had been completely blown off and almost half of his head as well. Pee-wee's room was searched, and all the things needed to create a bomb were found, including a soldering iron and shrapnel and... 38 audio cassette tapes. And do you remember what was on those tapes? Those were the tapes containing his conversations with Tony Simo and their discussion and plotting of Tyner's murder. Now, Pee-wee was charged with first-degree murder in the death of Tyner. In the biggest twist of irony in this whole case, he wasn't able to get the death penalty for his 15 previous victims, 
but it took the jury less than an hour to return a guilty verdict and sentence Pee-wee to death in the murder of Tyner. Now, let's talk about the fate of Tony Simo. Tony was quickly caught and arrested for his part in the hit on Tyner, and he expressed absolutely no remorse. He told the police that he would happily do it again. Now, a lot of people actually saw him as a hero because not only did he get Tyner killed, but he also inadvertently got Pee-wee put back to death. So a lot of people saw him like, you know, you killed two birds with one stone. And a lot of people didn't want him to get convicted or arrested. But of course, they can't just let him walk. So Tony Simo was tried and convicted of conspiring to commit murder and sentenced to eight years in prison. In order to pay for his legal fees, the community held a barbecue and raffle to raise money for him. Now, Simo only served six months before being released to a halfway house to serve out the remainder of his sentence, but was completely released after just two and a half years. After his release, Tony stood firm that he had absolutely no regrets and would do it all again, saying, I do not feel the good Lord holds anything against me for this. Now, unfortunately, Tony continued to live a... Tony continued to lead a hard life after his release and soon fell victim to drugs before suffering a fatal drug overdose in 2001 at the age of 54. Now, Pee-wee sat on death row until September 6, 1991. Just hours before he was set to be executed, Pee-wee attempted suicide by slitting his own wrist. But now, police were able to bandage him up, and at 1.10 a.m., he was strapped into the electric chair His final words were, I'll let my lawyer talk for me. I'm ready to go. And I'll play a clip here, actually, of the crowd that gathered outside the prison waiting for him to die. And they were like chanting the song and all this. So people were uh, excited. Fry him, fry him, fry him like a chicken. People of his kind are ripe for the picking. Shave his head and apply to jail. Pull the lever and send him to hell. And with a few volts, a few thousand volts of electricity, Donald Peewee Gaskins was dead. His body was cremated and his ashes were spread in his hometown by his daughter. And with that, we close out this tragic, bizarre, and horrible case of Peewee Gaskins and Tony Simo. And so that is the end of that truly bizarre uh, story. <laughs> that was a That was a crazy one. Like, when they say he's the Manson of the South, he was much worse than Manson ever dreamed of being. Manson only killed, I think he actually did kill like one or two people, but for the most part, he got other people to do his killing. But Pee Wee killed a shit ton of people and then actually got other people probably involved with it. It's so convoluted because sometimes he's very candid and honest and open with his murders. Sometimes he just makes up absolute bullshit. And then sometimes it's a mix of both. And so, honestly, we may never know how many people he actually killed or who all was actually involved in the killings, but he is dead and ashes. Good riddance. So that is a, um, that's always been one of those stories that fascinates me, especially because it's so bizarre with the, the bomb in prison part. That's one of those parts that I can't get over. And it's just, the man was, diabolical he was diabolical he was weird because i don't think he was like insane or anything like that he did have a weird code of ethics that he followed in his mind and people that wronged him or broke those codes of ethics he was like the only rational thing to do is just murder them 
it's one of those stories like if they made a movie about it, you'd be like, this movie is outlandish and just unbelievable. Yeah, it's one of those plots where it's like it's too crazy to be true. And they actually did make they made a movie about Tony. It's one of those um movies a week type situation in the eighties. So it's called Vengeance, the story of Tony Simo. And uh it was pretty good. It was very they fluffed it up a lot. But they I don't think they've ever actually made a movie about Pee Wee. There's plenty of documentaries, of course, but maybe uh one day we'll get a movie based off the meanest man in America. With that, thank you guys for tuning in for another week. Two-parter episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Be sure to leave us five-star reviews or rate us five stars on iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is you listen to the podcast. It helps us out a lot, and we appreciate the feedback. And if you want to see photos from the case or just contact us with case suggestions or just to say hi, you can follow us on Instagram at Beers with Queers Pod, P-O-D, Pod, or on Facebook at Beers with Queers, a true crime podcast. And we will see you back Monday for a whole new case. And until then, stay dangerous out there. See you guys. See ya. See ya.